0: You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Is it a little loud? Um, for context, I am in at the Vancouver Airport. Um, And I'm at a lounge, but it's one of those open air lounges next to the bag bag and security check. So that's why it's pretty loud. So forgive the noise for me. (laughs) But yeah, welcome back to Accounted For. Happy Wednesday. And today is another blast from the past. And it, it, it'll it probably be the final one until probably the next quarter, as I'm in week two of my quarterly retreat, and as I told you, I'm at the airport, getting ready to go back to Toronto and get my mind reset for the new quarter to come, the next three months. So I thought, why not share another very popular episode from the past? And so, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode you've never heard it before and if you have then maybe this can maybe rejig some inspiration for you for the upcoming week or month or whatever so yeah hope you enjoy and i hope to come back to you with more fun interesting interviews that will expand perspectives help you question the default path as well as inspire you to action for your career <laughs> Hey, folks. Happy Wednesday. My guest for today is Sam Restanio. He is one of the managing partners and co-founders of Golden Spruce Capital. And this was a really fun conversation. Uh, Golden Spruce Capital uh, is a private investment company that focuses on buying small businesses. And we kind of classify this as companies that have an EBITDA of $1 to $5 million. And for some of you who are not in the accounting realm you know i don't want to make you feel as if you're left out and EBITDA stands for earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization yeah i'm not really going to go into the history of why that was made but it's a very relevant term in the world of investing and just overall finance but yeah so our chat with uh sam takes me through just how he persevered through his career journey of um, he was really dead set on going into investment banking when he was in university and the first time around just didn't happen but eventually makes it through and we go through the process of really making the decision to leave that plush expense account and the comfy life that banking ultimately rewards the people that get in there with and really taking the journey to start a two-person fund with this business partner and we really dive into the world of small company investing And like the really big importance of relationship building in that aspect the opportunity size of that in toronto and just general canada area as well as just the various funding options like how do you run uh you know five twenty million dollar fund and the realities of how frugal you have to be how much you really have to hustle even if you are running a private equity fund because when you start off it's just going to be like any other startup i personally got a lot of value out of this chat and you know, if in, even if you aren't someone who isn't really hell bent on running your own investment company in the future, I really think you'll be able to extract a lot of value out of our conversation as well. So I really hope you enjoy my chat with Sam Rastagno. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us now on Accounted for once again today on the podcast. I have Sam Ristanio. Did I pronounce that right? You did. I'm very surprised. Thank you. You you did your homework. Yeah, I did. Um, (laughs) Sam is the managing partner at Golden Spruce Capital. And so, Sam, um, can you just, for our audience's sake, give a quick explanation of what Golden Spruce Capital is, just for their understanding?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So, Golden Spruce Capital is an independent sponsor. uh, and I'm sure we'll get into explaining what that is. But an independent sponsor that looks to make uh, investments in what well, we like to, you know, determine or classify as best-in-class uh, businesses, small medium-sized businesses. So businesses spanning, you know, a million to five million of, of uh, EBITDA. Um, we focus primarily on uh, Ontario and California-based businesses, although we, we are looking at some opportunities broadly across Canada, uh, but are, are fairly, you know, fairly concentrated in those for selfish reasons. Um, and then uh, you know we we like a myriad of industries. That I'm sure we'll we'll get into uh, really like tech enabled businesses, like asset light businesses, um, and really businesses where we can generate a partnership with uh, with existing owners and, and managers. Um, you know the, the genesis of Golden Spruce Capital was providing a means to um, you know aid in succession planning because we we noticed a, a real. A real dislocation in the market where there's a lot of really great mature small businesses that have been run like family businesses for a long time, uh, that the first generation created it. The second generation doesn't really have an interest in, you know, working in a in a widget based business. You know, they would, you know, in, in a lot of cases want to be artists or you know want want to do things that, um, you know, being the second generation of a of a uh, you know high earning business is. Uh, the byproduct of um and you know we tried to insert ourselves there to to assist that transition planning that succession planning you know funny funny thing there is you know it was initially intended to target call it the you know 50 to 60 year old entrepreneur uh, that was looking for that okay i need to retire and i haven't really been able to think about it and Oddly enough, you know, uh, we've had our greatest success with, with the younger entrepreneurs that are looking for partners and not necessarily succession planning, but more so and just helping professionalize and add some jet fuel to the business. So long-winded way to say independent sponsor that uh, focuses on uh, small and medium-sized businesses.
0: Okay, no, uh, I, think, I think that was a, definitely a good color to have, though, in the industry just because um, my, my understanding is like I, I have friends in private equity. Also, um, I grew up in Vancouver and so in Vancouver... There really isn't much of an industry except for small business owners mm-hmm. um, and we, I think I, I'm at that generation of my friends where we have parents who are part of the baby boomer generation and they are either going to give you the business or preparing you to take over which right. is happening with some of my friends or my friends try it out and then they say you know what I, I don't want to do leather goods and, right you know <laughs> shipping of bags anymore like it's just not right. my thing and so then the parents decide okay we're going to sell off and that has been a very common, I think, thesis that's been brewing up with, oh yeah, like the baby, the baby boomer wave. They're all gonna seek liquidity. You know, they're not gonna get as much yield on their retirement funds anymore. So right. they wanna sell their business. And so I think a lot of people thought that that would be the big play for the lower market private equity side. And from what you're telling me, that's that's actually quite surprising that you've seen more success with the younger people.
1: Well, you know, it's it's not. Um, I think that might be more a function of the sample size isn't huge, right? Like mm. we've been we've been at this for uh, for two years now. My partner uh, Leith Asher, and myself have been at this for two years, and have spoken to you know uh, upwards of two to three hundred you know entrepreneurs and, and uh, also businesses by. By definition, Um, and you know, I'd say the 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 majority of those are folks who are that you know north of fifty, and say you know whether the child doesn't have interest or the parent doesn't believe that the child is um, is capable, uh, we see that we see that a fair amount. where we've had success is, you know, we've just developed good relationships with a, with a few folks that, that happen to be a little younger. But we've got great relationships with some, some older folks that are kind of in that more traditional, um, you know, looking to looking to provide that, that layer of succession, transition planning in their own business. Um, but, yeah, you know, certainly not by design. And that's one of the things I'm sure you've talked to, you know, some, some startup founders. You've, you've got to be able to pivot. And you've got to find find your spot that's uh, that's working and that becomes your business model that
0: day, right? So, yeah. um, we we've stayed fairly flexible through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, before we go, I guess deeper into the Golden Spruce model, which I'm just so fascinated to learn about. Um, when I did a little digging in your background, it would you know you look on LinkedIn, then we see you went to Western, mm-hmm. uh, and then you did some financial or financial planning controller work, and then you went to Rotman to do your MBA, then some investment banking and then you went to do some corp dev at Dental Corp, and mm-hmm. then now you're launching Golden Spruce. So if you could take me back to kind of the earlier years, um, what was the transition like in terms of you graduated, and did you have... a it seemed that you always had an inkling to go into the finance world, um, and how did that kind of thought process and design work?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely did. You know, I think it started it started a little younger. It started a little younger for me in terms of you know that's uh, that was my father's background. He was in finance, and oh. um, I was always intrigued by it. And then as a you know a very um, you know, a very pliable teen and an and an, an influenceable teen. Um, you know, saw some movies. I was like, oh, this looks like a lot of fun and I'd love to, you know, love to live in New York or Los Angeles and work in finance. It sounds fantastic. So I went to Western and um, knew I wanted to get into finance and, you know, knew, you know, I'll, and I'm yeah, unfortunately the listener can't see me do the air quotes, but knew that I wanted to do investment banking. And that's really what my career was going to be. Because, as, you know, as every 18 year old knows, you know, they know exactly what they're going to do in their career um and i'm you know we're we're just figuring it out now but uh you know figured out i wanted to do investment banking and um you know the process to get into banking is as you you know alluded you've you've got some friends that kind of went that path it's it's competitive it's challenging right and and um you know if i'm if i'm being honest with myself i probably had a little too much fun in undergrad where getting into getting into banking was stuff and you know, I, I can't imagine the kid the, the kids today graduating. Are, it's a bit different because, you know, we've had a quite a run for some time in terms of the market. But, you know, this was 2007, 2008. So they're hiring in droves and I'm not one of them. right <laughs> So I kind of had to reassess and say, OK, well, I'm going to do it eventually. They're just not going to let me in the front door. I'm going to come in another way. And uh, ended up getting a great gig with uh, with Siemens, the um, engineering the European engineering conglomerate, in their oil and gas uh, on their oil and gas team as part of this you know development program. And I remember you know I was so eager to get the job. In the interview process, they said you know would you be willing to move? And I made a comment saying you know I'd, I'd move to Kalamazoo, uh, you know, for, for the gig just as a as a joke. I didn't even know where Kalamazoo was at the time. Uh, and sure enough I got a call you know, a week later saying you know, good news you're one of six people that we're bringing into this program and it was very competitive to get in and good news you're bringing in this program I said it's fantastic I said when do I start I said you know, middle of May said, great um, yeah so you're, uh, you know, we'll book your flights for you and you know um, I'm a, so, sorry what was that like, oh you're starting in Calgary and I said oh wow okay um, I guess I did agree to that in the interview didn't I, I didn't think that my words mattered so I ended up going out to Calgary and doing some operational finance. I really enjoyed it. I was in on the oil and gas team there managing a few different pipeline projects and it just so happened that, you know, it's one of these things that happens in your career, you know, these weird opportunities kind of pop up. And as I was starting the director who I was supposed to be reporting to, who directed the project, um, ended up going on mat leave early because you know, I think she had her child uh, a little premature, and I stepped into the role. Not in, they didn't give me the director title, but I took on a lot, a lot of responsibility, um, and you know, kind of flew by the seat of my pants and figured it out. And you know, at the end of that, it was I was there for about a year, and then moved back to Toronto uh, and joined the healthcare team, which was a lot more. Um, you know, I'd like to compare it to almost an assembly line, right? You've got a product, someone buys it, and you just kind of fulfill, and there was more you know, HR, not HR, sorry, FX hedging uh, and things of that nature, but it wasn't, it wasn't that exciting. And I knew, okay, it's time to get back to what I want to do, which was banking. And so I actually um, sent emails to about, you know, call it 70 to 75 investment banks saying, hey, I want to work for free. I'll come and work for free for you guys. And, uh, you know, knew that the big guys wouldn't be into it. So I, I looked at all the boutiques of small guys and, um, you know, there was actually, I only got feedback from one and this is to work for free so now this is uh you know call it september 2009 and uh, no a little later maybe uh, january 2010 and got an email from one saying yeah we'd love for you to come on i won't name them because i don't want to you know get you into any trouble but I said yeah we'd love for you to come on i said great you know I'd like to put some term on this you know has three months said, No, we want you to work, you know, indefinitely. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I, I, last I checked, servitude's illegal in Canada, but, um, you know, slavery's not allowed. And, um, you know, so I ultimately said, you know what, forget it. I went to get my MBA, Robin, and I said, this is the way I'm going to get in. And, you know, sure enough, three months later, I was in as a summer associate and had a few different options. And the funny thing is, is I was the same guy I was three months earlier, right? I had three months of an MBA behind me um you know i effectively you know the first year of an mba is quite repetitive if you've done a commerce undergrad or business undergrad so i did the same schooling was the same person and yet now getting in as a as an associate um with the big banks was really easy to do because of the signal of the mba and you know i'm, I'm certainly not complaining it worked out well um and then yeah uh, made my transition you know to the to the other gigs i was at uh, at RBC for some time on the uh, with the sponsors team, which meant that I covered private equity, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. So you got the benefit of doing a lot of client stuff. I had a great team there. Um, really enjoyed the transaction work, but really, really loved the work that my clients were doing. Having you know covering the private equity space and even the sovereign wealth fund guys to a certain extent, and you know I got to dabble in both. I got to do the you know high volume of of investment banking with you know, diving in fairly deep and on really interesting assets with the private equity guys. So it was, it was there that, you know, actually that's where, um, Laith, Laith and I, Laith again, being my partner, uh, decided, Hey, this would be pretty cool. This is kind of the search fund era. Now we're 2011, um, where, you know, OXO capital and a couple other guys started up and, uh, we looked at that and said, "That, that looks like fun. We should do something like that. And it just so happened. I was in the sponsor space. So, kind of long story, that, that was the initial seed of, hey, this is pretty interesting, I could see myself doing this long-term. You know, as a funny aside, uh, it was my first day of my MBA, and my whole life I wanted to do investment banking. Uh, not my whole life, my whole adult life wants wanted to do investment banking. And uh, Toronto Life came in and asked if I would do a, like a little, a little bio on myself that they could feature in Toronto Life, and I said, sure. Uh, and they said, you know, what are you gonna be doing in 10 years? And the natural thing for me to say was investment banking, because that's what I always thought I would be doing. But instead, I said I would be a managing partner at a private equity fund, which, you know, if I'm being honest with myself now, I'm not quite sure that I knew really what that meant at the time. Uh, but it's just funny that it kind of worked out that way. Uh, so it's it's been a roundabout way, but,
0: you know, really
1: happy with, with the choices and, and where I landed.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's, that uh, little foreshadowing is really really something there. It's it's kind of a, it's a little uh, Freudian-esque where you do a little bit of a psychoanalysis and you're like deep down, you knew what you yeah. wanted even though it wasn't really... Yeah, it's you almost really like it sure. wasn't my choice. Yeah. yeah, it's like you were destined <laughs> to be in that
1: realm. Right, right. It probably builds it up to a lot
0: more. than you know, it probably,
1: <laughs> I might have heard it for the first time that day and you know I thought it sounded exciting and, yeah, and I yeah. had a, a vague, vague idea
0: what uh, what private equity was. But yeah. yeah, it's it's funny how it came full circle. I, I think it even the... The timeline of everything is also I think quite unique in that you you know you were looking to get into the finance world but I guess the great financial crisis had happened and mm-hmm. I think at so that it's, it's really timely because I think that was my so I'm a few years younger than you but my kind of year of people we saw that when we were pre, pre-university and then everyone became like the big accounting cohort and everyone was like we want stable jobs, we mm-hmm. and we became really conservative. And so you see this huge entrance of accounting people, and not so much people who want to do investment banking. Right. But you kind of held on to it and just continued to push through despite that. Yeah,
1: you know, it might be for a lack of awareness. I, who knows, right? I mean, <laughs> I might not have been reading the headlines the same way everyone else was, mm-hmm. but uh, no, I mean, the jobs were still there. It was still a necessary part of the market, or mm-hmm. part of you know, part of the uh, economy, and. You know it wasn't it wasn't popular at the time right I, you know i think um a lot of that industry had been vilified and in, in some of it justifiably so uh, as a result of 2007 2008 um but yeah just stuck with my guns I, kn- I knew i wanted that i knew i had the horsepower right i i think i think a lot of people get into investment banking thinking they know what it is and then until they get there they don't really know what it is and that was certainly you know i can't speak for other people I speak for myself that was the case with me where i had this you know really shiny idea of you know what investment banking was and what the life of an associate was um and it was probably informed by a lot of you know a lot of media and you know in my in my teens and i got there and not that i didn't like it i really enjoyed it but it was very different and maybe the environment in Canada, and, and certainly actually I know this. I a few of my friends are in the states uh, doing this, but the environment in Canada is very different. It's much more buttoned down. It's much more conservative. There's you know there's no uh, that quote unquote models and bottles. And I think the industry is better off for it as a result. And um, but yeah, it was it was quite different from from what I expected. Even the work product was very different. But I learned a ton and, and really enjoyed it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I I think in terms of just. The path you took, where I was actually shocked that you only got one reply back after seventy cold cold calls. I because mean, maybe me, I didn't know how to write an email yet. I mean, that's quite that's
1: quite possible. But yeah, I mean, it was uh,
0: it was it was
1: daunting. I, I thought for sure, okay, I'm willing to give up a, a good job at, at Siemens and to do this for free in what I believe to be a lucrative industry, which is a lucrative industry. And uh, I can't even get an email back, right? Yeah, to, to say hey, I'll work for free. So it was pretty daunting, but
0: you know uh call it hubris i just stuck with it and just and yeah. kind of break my way in yeah no i think perseverance is actually a big factor of people achieving what they want like uh because when i was first getting my shot at the buy side i think i cold emailed 60 to 70 buy side managers myself too mm-hmm. and maybe it's an industry thing i don't know but i i had a hit rate of around 30 percent Oh, so, wow. Yeah, I spoke to about 20, 20 to 30 by Managers in Toronto. I got to get
1: you to start writing the emails when we reach out to new entrepreneurs. Know, maybe, that's maybe. Higher than, uh, <laughs> that's higher than our hit rate, for sure.
0: But yeah, so I, but I think though, like that kind of, it teaches you something, right? It teaches you grit. It teaches you how to just constantly keep at something. Right. And I think even, like even in like the MBA pathway, like coming from my kind of consulting background, a lot of my friends all think about MBAs. Like every consultant thinks about being mm-hmm. an MBA because mm-hmm. it's just so normal. And I think... When people ask me, like, oh, should I do an MBA, Dan? I was like that, and why do you want to do it? And like reasons like what you did where it's just it's very focused. Like, I want to do investment banking. And here the facts show that 30% of MBA grads go to investment banking. Right. 30% go to consulting. It's very focused compared to some people who just go and say, I don't know, I just want kind of God to hit me with lightning and tell right. me, like, you are destined to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and then just kind of go with it.
1: Right, which is not how, you know, I think... I get i do a lot of chats with um with undergrads and, and and post undergrads that are you know call it the analyst level at investment banks or mm-hmm. you know even uh, at the accounting firms consultancies etc say you know should i get an mba i'm thinking about getting an mba and i'll ask the same well why right what what is it what is it you're looking to get and you know and all will to my experience what i needed was i needed this signal to the market to say hey don't look at, you know, the kid I was in terms of my grades, but look at the, you know, the person I've become and I can get into an MBA program. I can score well on the GMAT, et cetera, et cetera. My grades are good, blah, blah, blah. And I can present. Okay. But I knew I couldn't get the audience to present to you without that. Right. So it was, I, I was young when I did it and it was, uh, it was, I shouldn't say it, it was an, you know, an expensive risk, but you know, it was certainly a capital. I was allocating a lot of capital. I was giving up income and I was spending a lot of income and we're spending a lot of dough. So I think that certainly played, played in, um, into it for me. Uh, but overall, you know, I think you, you end up getting the NBA because, you know, it provides that window, but what it also does, and I think that I'm seeing more of that now and I'm certainly appreciating more of that now in my network is my NBA, you know, classmates, right. And, and, um u of t is a bit different because people tend to stay in toronto it doesn't have that kind of global dispersion that you know call it a, a harvard will have where you know you have people from all over the world going to harvard and then they go back right? right so they'll go to new york they'll go to la they'll go to toronto they'll go to vancouver they'll go to hong kong though you kind of have that global network with u of t you have a, a far more localized network um but it's it's played out well you know. It, I still do a lot of work with uh, do a lot of work with my my classmates and you know I, I certainly approach them with problems and you know things of that nature. Some of them are my investors actually. so it's it's worked out well, but I think you have to have a targeted approach to why you want to do it because it you know it, to do it just to do it doesn't make a ton of sense and it's probably a, a poor allocation of capital but you know, at the same time, you're, you're improving yourself. And if you've got, you know, if, if you can justify it, then
0: why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And so, you know, you're at RBC, um, in the financial sponsors team. And so to get to kind of clarify my limited knowledge, so that team, your clients are purely like private equity firms, or like buy side clients, and yes, you're helping them, uh, is it just raise more capital to Go about with their acquisitions. Yeah,
1: so it's it's primarily you know we're we're on the debt side of the equation for the most part there, right? So we'll do a lot of we would do. I still speak like I'm I'm there, but uh, we would do a lot of debt raises for them and work on that. Uh, you know, at RBC we're one of the few banks, actually at the time, the only bank that could really had access to or really had access to the U.S. institutional debt market because you know we had a large presence in the capital markets in the U.S. Um, but did a lot of that and then did some sell-side work as well for portfolio companies that were spinning spinning out of a fund. Um, worked on, uh, you know, looked at some some IPO stuff as well for exits, but I mean, they're not really hiring you for buy-side advice because that's what they get paid for. Um, but uh, yeah, got to touch a myriad of, you know, aspects of a transaction, which was really interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that I call um, banking, consulting, audit kind of more platform job. Like there are things that you go in when you're young to do for a couple years and hopefully to do something else most people don't go into those and like stay there for long term and i think it's good to see what your queer clients are because then it kind of leads to a higher possibility or probability that you'll end up in that space because generally your clients will kind of take you because it's a people hiring people business and people want to take people that they know like yeah like when i was an auditor i was like yeah i don't really want to be On the client side, I don't want to be a controller. Right. And you go to consulting, you see, okay, do I want to be on the strategy side and vice versa, I think. And so I can definitely understand how for you, like, yeah, the private equity side was just very purely obvious in that perspective. Right. And, but after that, you went to Dental Corp instead of starting Golden Spruce right off the gate. Yeah. What was the uh, rationale behind that? Yeah, I think... Part of it for
1: me was, um, you know, right place, right time. Uh, I had worked on the um, debt raise for Dental Corp when Imperial Capital and OP Trust made the uh, made the investment in the business. I worked on the acquisition financing, so got to know the management team there, built a good relationship with them. And uh, they had approached me to lead their partnership development side, so their, their business development. So effectively, um, you know, I was flying around the country, speaking to dentists right and trying to buy their practice Um, but I worked hand in hand with the corp dev guys where you know they were doing the execution and I was doing the deal sourcing and the relationship building etc a lot of miles a lot you know in my last in my last six months actually not even yeah yeah uh, six months I flew 75,000 miles exclusively in Canada um and I didn't have many flights to Vancouver. So there was a lot. Like I would do three or four flight segments a week. Um, and it got to a point where, you know, I wasn't wasn't getting younger. Uh, I wanted to, wanted to make the transition out. But the reason I I ultimately decided to go to Dental Corp before starting uh, starting Golden Spruce Capital, not that I had a, a crystal ball, but I was, I was young at the time. I think it was uh, when I left for Dental Corp. That would have been in 2015. So, you know, pre-30. And... Um, I knew that you know I didn't quite have the small business experience that I needed to really be able to you know hold hand to heart and, and look an entrepreneur in the, in the eye and say hey I've been part of this before um, so I wanted to I wanted to get that smaller business experience and Dental Corp was a you know, a company that was growing hand over fist very very quickly you know when I started I think there were I want to say around 30, um, 30 people in head office and when I left a year later, there were 75. So seeing that growth and seeing the, the infrastructure kind of grow at the same time um, ended up being very, very valuable for me because it's, it's something I can relate to, you know, the owner operators I'm chatting with just because most of the business we speak to are growing pretty well, you know, not not 100% a year, but call it 25 to 30% a year. Uh, and understanding that chunks had been part of it. And I, I knew that that would be important. Not to mention, you know, there's certain perks of working for a very big firm that you don't have going to a smaller company, which is something I needed to get used to. I didn't have an assistant, right? I didn't have, uh, you know, I didn't have a, an analyst running and making photocopies. I didn't have a desktop publishing team putting presentations together for me. I mean, you're kind of rolling up your sleeves and really doing it all yourself. And that was a nice way to kind of, you know, dip the toe in the water and say, okay, let's get used to this first. Um, not that, you know, not that I require that kind of coddling, but you get used to it, right. And the expense account, et cetera. And I knew that ultimately I would have to get away from that if I wanted to go in the small business, small business realm. Uh, and I think it, I think it paid off and it got to a point where, you know, I was flying around the country and convincing, yeah, sure. Dentists and, you know, they're, they're business owners and operators as well. And I was flying around and I was convincing them to, you know, do a deal and uh, do a deal with us. And here's all the reasons why and you know Lathan, and I had stayed in, in contact and it become you know stayed friends over the over the years and I'd always kind of touched in yeah you, know, you know touch base every every quarter or so to say hey are you ready are you ready are you ready and it got to a point where I said you know there' was some life circumstance stuff where I said hey you know I think I think now is a good time I think you know I'm, I'm beaten up enough now that I can you know I can go out in the market I'm, I've got just enough gray hair uh, to, to I think be taken a little more seriously and you know, it's something nice about being 30 because you can say you're in your 30s, which I know sounds ridiculous. But, you know, when you're talking to business owners that are in their 50s and 60s, oftentimes we'll get asked the question, "How so how old are you? And you could say, I'm in my 30s, right? Uh, it sounds silly, but it, it makes a difference because their kids are in their 20s. And you might only be 18 months apart, but in your 20s versus in your 30s sounds very different. So I found that was quite helpful. So it felt like it was the right time you know we we had we had support from who are now our, our anchor our you know anchor investors and families um, we had their support we've been told a couple of times hey if you guys ever look to do this we'd love to deploy some capital behind you which we said great um we said now's the right time And you know uh late's background is excellent it's it's operational he was at McKinsey for a number of years after investment banking so he brings a lot of the strategy and the operational piece to you know to the forefront and and i brought more of kind of the deal and the finance piece and Slowly, it's kind of melded into one, and it's been a very cohesive partnership. So it just worked out well, right place, right time, and um, made a. It was an aggressive leap, though. I mean, it's tough to tough to cut off all, all income sources and say, "Hey, I'm going to go ahead and and bet on myself." And that's where we're a bit different from a search fund because we were self financed. So we actually put our own capital up to say we're going to go out and find deals, and we're going to take the risk on them. and we're going to be the ones you know uh, spending money in the accountants spending money in the lawyers that's us it's not our investors if the deal doesn't go through and you know we had one of those where the deal didn't go through and it was our necks out there right and it was our wallets that were that were funding it so it was a it was a big leap um but you know hey it, it
0: panned out or else we wouldn't be chatting yeah no I, that's uh that's definitely like a great story I, that I definitely am going to dig a, dig further into but um, no, I think that the saying you're, you're in your 30s is actually a, a very big deal um obviously like our our generation like especially like the millennials coming up they might get upset hearing them saying oh that's so ageist and how can you mm-hmm. judge people mm-hmm. like that but yeah like when i was in consulting i i heard about partners purposely graying their hair just to be respected and right. it like as someone that looks like he's 16 <laughs> I I I think it yeah it's definitely Don't
1: yourself. you look at least 18 all right thanks at least man 18. thank you I appreciate
0: that um, but yeah I think that does kind of play a part especially in the people business where you're trying to make connections with other people and trying to convince them of, of your competence right and I
1: think I think it, it's certainly you know it's it's primarily the first meeting I'll, I'll never forget one of the the first in-person meetings we had when you know we had Golden Spurs Capital I had driven out to West Toronto and met a, met a fellow who um, owned a, a factory of sorts. He manufactured things. And I came to the front, said, hi, it's, it's Sam here to see, you know, we'll call him John for the purpose of this conversation. Said, Is yeah. Sam here to see John? I said, great. And we had been back and forth by email saying, okay, John, we're going to, you know, meet this day and looking forward to meeting you, blah, blah, blah. We had a couple couple phone calls. And uh, so John gets to the front. He says, oh, hi, nice to meet you. I said, yeah, you as well. He said, uh, is, is your boss Sam going to be coming? And uh, I said, yeah, he is. He said, oh, great. He said, you know, soon? I said, no, he's here. I'm Sam. You know, I'm, and uh, you know, it was a bit of a laugh. And, you know, he, those things are common, but it was, it was quickly there. At, like if you can't, if you need to be over 30 after that point to, you know, to be heard in the room, you're probably not communicating properly. It was, it's, it's always been the first point of interaction. And after the fact, you know, you've got to be able to communicate your point and whether you're 17 or 80, if you're ineffective, you're ineffective, right? So it really is that initial, that initial meeting and then after that, it wears off. It's a good thing that my partner has a lot more grace than I do. So that's it, it <laughs> more For those who don't know, my part, My partner's sitting about 20 feet
0: away from me and my yeah feet <laughs>
1: up and uh, he's, I'm probably going to hear about that one
0: after. <laughs> and, um, uh, you talked about how yeah so golden screws in the beginnings you thought about you know the idea initially came out from oh the search fund model is interesting and for the audience that are not familiar with the search fund um you can correct me if i'm wrong from my understanding as well but th- the way i understand it that generally is practically you raise a bunch of money um from other investors and with that money you have about a two-year window to mm-hmm. go out and buy a business um just all of it uh it usually tends to be a, more of an older style business like a big factory or something and then once you buy it you move your entire life to where that company is whether it's like north carolina or something and then you just operate it as the new ceo so that's the traditional kind of search fund model from my understanding Mm -hmm. um did i miss anything there
1: yeah the only the only nuance is so you you know you'll typically raise what they refer to as search capital which pays for your you know you pay yourself a nominal salary and uh, it pays for your travel expenses when you have to go out and meet, you know, entrepreneurs and, you know, take them out to dinner, etc., and, and pay for accounting fees on broken deal costs, et cetera. So that, that gets covered by the quote unquote search, search, um, fund component or search capital. When you actually find a business though, the difference is that cert, that capital hasn't been raised yet. So now what you have to do is you go back to your funders and say, Hey, I found one, um, do you want to participate and they have the choice to say yes or no if they say no um that doesn't stop you from do, doing the deal you, they just have the first option you can then go outside of them and raise the capital but their search capital will get promoted into the deal and you know the, the market's changing but you know anyone listening to this can go to the stanford you know stanford business school website and they've got the it's called the search fund primer it uh, kind of explains the traditional model, but yeah, the the traditional model is exactly that. And then you know you find a business in in you know Wisconsin, and you buy it, and you fly down there, and you're now you know the, again the traditional traditionally you're the CEO of the business, you're the president of the business, whatever, and you're running it, and now you're an operator, but you're you're no longer looking to actively
0: acquire because you're day to day in a business and running a business. Mm-hmm. And generally, um, from your, what you've seen how much does the search capital really like cost to go out, find a and all that?
1: Yeah. You know, I think it, it it
0: depends how you travel,
1: right? Like I think, um, and, and how you spend, like, you know, um, we, we were pretty, we're pretty diligent on our, on our expense side. Just, I mean, I think I'd like to think that we'd be this way, even if we had search capital. I mean, I'm actually certain we would be. Um, but you know, we were, spend time looking for an office lease right we didn't rush into it and say you know we want the one on the 30th floor with with windows and you know overlooking you know lake ontario no we're you know we're like no nope, this one works well we have four desks which is great for us and, and interns um it's sure it's in a basement who cares right we're good we can work from a basement does that have internet yes okay great so i think it really depends on, on your approach to things um as it relates to Deal costs and things like accounting and, and legal. I think your expenses where where things start to get quote unquote expensive is when you have broken deal costs. That's because if you get the deal done, you know uh, a few hundred thousand dollars in, in legal and accounting fees, depending on the size of your deal, is fine. It's it's where you don't get the deal done that you still have to pay that amount. Um, that now you've kind of depleted it. But I think on average, most you know most folks are raising, you know. Four to five hundred grand for for a two year fund. Um, and that's you know that's probably one partner though. If you have two partners, maybe seven fifty uh, for the search capital piece. And you know if you happen to acquire in month three and you've only spent two hundred grand of that, the five fifty gets returned to investors in, in, in most models I've seen.
0: Mm-hmm. And for, but for you, uh, you and Latham, you guys decided okay, no, we're gonna use our own capital. Mm-hmm. And when you find something, then you are going to Go back to your fund investors and say okay we're ready like we have something and that's when you decide to raise a fund
1: yeah it well was, it wasn't even raise a fund so an independent sponsor will go and you know find the deal negotiate the deal and then approach investors and say hey here are the deal terms here's the business right it's back to almost back to our banking days except we actually have to you know think about the strategy but here's the business here's how we think we can help here's where we think it can grow um here's you know the 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 famous infamous model right because we can predict seven years into the future but based on what we've understood here's you know here's what the business is going to look like in five years based on some of the things that you know low-hanging fruit and the operational levers we believe we can pull um and uh you know here are the deal terms and here's what you want to invest on in you know minimum investment x and if you want to let us know we'd love to allocate some room for you if not that's okay we'll show you the next one where where it was a bit different for us was you know we funded that our we funded the search component ourselves, um, and one of the reasons we did that one we we're a little we are we a little older than your typical um, search fund investor although that's changing a little bit I know some some folks that are doing this uh, you know out west in in Calgary that are you know seasoned uh, seasoned uh, folks and you know, men and women. Um, as well as in the states but the traditional model really came out of stanford that okay you graduate from your mba uh after having done banking and then done your mba and now you're going to go out and buy a business so it's it's a bit it's a bit different now. So i think i i know of more people that are going the self financed route i didn't know at the time when we did it that there were a lot of guys actually in speaking with our lawyer who's you know the box on on search funds in canada he said you know not many guys are doing this and you know he was actually advising us to do the opposite but the thesis worked out because the, one of the reasons we wanted to do that was we didn't want to pin ourselves to economic terms prior to getting the deal done, right? And, um, you know, typically you, you, you agree on a certain economic term for, for yourselves as, as the searchers that says, okay, I will, you know, do, you know, I'll get 20%, you know, 2 and 20 kind of traditional model right. or the most common in search funds is kind of 10, 10, 10, 10 being on, uh, 10 being on, being on time, 10 being on performance and 10 being on it's slipped my mind I want to say getting the deal done. Um, they get right off the, right off the bat. Oh. Um, whereas with us we said okay well if we've got a you know we want to be flexible and a lot of the reasons deals weren't getting done with search funds was you know they couldn't make that 10 10 10 work right? So we heard of a couple of scenarios where there were there were people invested in the fund that would see a you know see an investment, an investment memo and would love it. And then the searcher would say, we just can't make this work, which is fair. I mean, you know, they're committing themselves to the business for five years and they need to make an income as well. And they need to make a return on the thing. And, you know, typically they've left lucrative careers. So if you look at something that's going to pay you a million dollars over five years and you left 500 grand a year, the, the returns aren't quite there. So you need something that kind of offsets that. Um, and what we, you know, what kind of, was one of the light bulbs for us was we spoke to a couple guys that were invested in these search funds in the search capital piece that had seen the investment memo the searcher said we can't do it it's not big enough or we can't do it the returns just don't make sense for us and the investor went out and said okay well I'm gonna go ahead and do this on my own then right when I saw that I said okay the person providing the capital still wants to do it but you can't make it work okay well there has to be an intersection there where the person providing the capital is willing to give you better terms to do the deal until that deal doesn't become you know lucrative enough for the investor and or the or, and, and or the searcher um, and the way we got around it which you know isn't isn't that you know um, isn't that designed but it's pretty simple was well let's go ahead and not take search capital and we'll figure out what economics we need to make work on every deal and you know if we're too aggressive we we'll let the market decide and we won't be able to sell it and if we're not aggressive enough it'll be really easy to raise and that's okay it's our first deal um but that was the main reason that we did that was we want to be able to look at different types of deals smaller deals right on a bigger deal you can go less on the economic side because it makes sense but smaller deals you can find some fantastic businesses that are less you know less competitive to go after that are really great that can actually use our help in professionalizing and, and really adding some of that you know adding some of that fuel to the fire um versus that you know seven million dollar ebitda business where we're competing with your more traditional tour quests and you know not quite virtual but imperial capital etc um you know we're candidly if we win that if we win that auction we might have done something wrong they've got more resources than us the smaller side it's more relationship based it's more it's it's less institutionalized professionalized business that they care about what happens to their you know to their baby because oftentimes these businesses preclude their children um and it's just you know it was an interesting space to play we wanted the ability to be flexible do we look at high growth companies or low growth companies and this gives us the opportunity to say okay well with a low growth company that we're going to hold longer maybe we change our economic model so it's more you know it's we can find the investors who want to do this deal because there's a, an investor who's looking for yield as you know there's also investors that want you know cap growth right so we wanted to be able to do both and be flexible and, and be nimble with the market, and not really put ourselves in a box. And self-financing certainly helped do that.
0: Yeah, I think, and you know, in hindsight, I think that is the very, um, it's, in in one sense, it's kind of being like the good steward of capital. Like uh, I think even in the public equity like said there are managers like Munish Pai Bhai and like Buffett also is a very big advocate of this of, of you know not taking management fees and only being paid on performance and being the one to be you know you risk your own capital and you put your neck out there and you really eat your own cooking that way but yeah i think it's it could even like i'm trying to imagine it it must probably probably like daunting to know that yeah like if if this deal fails and it's it's on us and like all the pressure from that
1: yeah it is and you know i i certainly don't want to classify the guys who are doing the search guys and girls who are doing the search funds as you know being inherently uh, greedy because that isn't the case i think it's you know, we we were we were fortunate enough to, as I mentioned, be a little gray or a little more beaten up, where we had you know um, we had the capital to be able to risk to do it. Not to mention, you know, at the time we were, were both single, no children, not married, um, you know, no, not a ton of overhead, right? Like we live pretty lean. Um, so we had the good fortune of doing that. You know, if you've got two kids and you know you're married or whether you're not married who knows but you own a house and you've got a bunch of overhead you look at that and say okay well i'm not going to be i'm not going to ask for a quarter of a million a year but you know 80 grand a year let me just keep the lights on right and um so th- it's not an it's not an inherent greed it's just we were we were fortunate enough to say hey we've got interesting life circumstances here that we're both able to take a risk and and, and do it
0: yeah and i think that's like your situation and the kind of lifestyle lead those can actually be competitive advantages that if the people you know want to really utilize it, you can actually use it to your strength that right. other people not might not be able to. And so then you know you decide to say, okay, we're gonna use our own capital. But how did you go about um, getting the backers, like getting the people, uh, convincing the people to eventually fund this acquisition? Like how does that work? Because you know I'm trying to think, like you know what what would someone say? If uh, an MBA kid who just graduated with some banking experience came up to it and said, "Hey, I want to do such fun. Can you back me up?"
1: Right. Yeah, no. It's a uh, you know again the the Stanford Primer has some pretty good um, some some pretty good pointers on that. There's another book uh, by HBR that is um, yes. Think Big, Buy Small. Uh, that's great and is a, is a nice step by step on here's how to do it. I think you know. Um, laith and i were fortunate in that you know we had the opportunity to work with some high net worth individuals over our careers um as well as have you know some have kind of fallen into our networks as friends professionally etc uh that we really didn't raise any institutional money like there was no there was never a point where we said hey here's who we are um until until later on where you know we start to get a little more strategic around hey it would be really great to bring in an investor from this geography who has experience in these businesses then there was a hey here's who we are but for the initial support it was really you know folks that we had worked with and former mentors that we said hey this is what we're looking to do and they said you know we're 100 in And one of the benefits of that is they know how we work they know what we're good at they know what we're not good at Um, but there wasn't much of like uh you know my name is sam and 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 that that piece Whereas I know a lot of the traditional searchers do have to go that path. And and that's okay too, right? There's a ton of capital out there looking to fund, um, you know, smart young people to do this or smart people in general. It doesn't need to be young, but smart people who are willing to do this. And we haven't gotten into this piece. But the reason is, you know, if you look at the valuation of public markets, right, it's tough to deploy capital in it, you know, it's tough to deploy capital in this market. It is. Um, and if you look at the cost of capital and, and how cheap money is right now and the amount of money that's out there chasing everything, it's tough. If you talk to anyone who works at a, a larger private equity fund, they'll say deploying capital, um, deploying capital into you know the 20 million dollar plus EBITDA companies is not tough. you're you know a 20% IRR net of fees for a PE fund these days is not, you know, is not easy to come by. I think most guys are bidding down to, you know, high teens, and high teens is probably good in certain circumstances. I mean, I remember there was a deal that I looked at, uh, and this is four four years ago, three sorry, three or four years ago, um, when I was still in banking, that, you know, there was a, a very large asset with two parties involved, and I won't mention either the asset or the parties, but, you know, a billion-dollar-plus check, and it got bid down to, you know, low, low teens, like 12, 13%, so not even teens in a certain case, but 12, 13% IRR because um, they need to deploy. They do need to deploy wow. because you have a lot of capital sitting there. So it's getting tougher to deploy large amounts of capital. and getting a return is, is, is tougher. So if you're an investor and you say, okay, I, I still would like a 20 plus percent yield in a certain case the smaller deals are, are higher, call it 25, 30 percent plus yield after fees. I just don't have the time to run around and chase these things on my own, right? And it's tough to have the infrastructure of a private equity fund where you've got partners and you've got VPs and principals and associates and analysts running around doing that writing, you know, writing 10-20 million dollar checks in terms of total value, in terms of equity, you know, half of that, right? 5 to 10. You look at that, and you're like, okay, well, I don't I can't generate a management fee to cover the infrastructure costs of doing that so what they need to do is they have to find some younger folks that that is a lot of money for the younger folks who say okay well i'll operate really lean i'll do it myself and we'll take your capital so we'll take your capital and invest in there you want and there's a lot of uh, a lot of demand from the investor side to say hey we want exposure to these deals um we're getting told by investors that hey, I have friends that would like to get into the next deal you guys do. So it's not for lack of capital. It's really you know picking your spots and finding the opportunities you want to chase down because there are a lot of opportunities. There's also a lot of people chasing them. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the, the one really nice thing about our se- section of our segment of the market is there still very much is that personal touch, which is you know the feel, the relationship because there is a, an emotional attachment to the business that in a larger company you don't necessarily have uh where you know if you're if your fund mandate is to be highest price at all times and you know this isn't i'm not spitting wisdom here i think everyone knows this but if you're winning because you're high spit constantly um either you're that much smarter than everyone else that you can underwrite higher risk and underwrite to a different return or um, you're just kind of paying for access and i think in our segment of the market, we don't have to do that. We can go. Um, we don't need to be top bidder. We can build a relationship and and really develop that uh, rapport with the owner where they trust the fact that the company is going to be in very good hands and you know we're we're not going to tear it apart. We're going to help it grow and that's what we're really really interested in. So that's the interesting segment of our market and that's why you know going full circle, why approaching investors is less daunting. Than, than one would think. I, I mean, I remember our first calls. You know, I had 10, 10 people that I knew I wanted to go out to, I had good relationships with. And and I said, you know what, if I can get this is kind of proof of concept time. I said, if I can get four or five of them to say they're interested, it's great. Um, and it was over the course of like three days, you know, 10 phone calls slash meetings, a lot of coffee over those days. And um, I had 10 people said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, granted, Who's going to say no to a free option, but they were supportive and, you know, they've, they've all proven to be supportive, even through the first acquisition, which was great, where they had to put their money where their mouth was. Um, But it worked out. And I don't think that's a special circumstance because we're, you know, we're extraordinary people. I think it, it's a function of the market, and I think it's, you know, back to that concept of signaling, it's a function of, here's what we've done in the past, which means we, you know, we're not we're not absolute zeros, right? We, we bring something to the table, and, and we have some chops, and at the very least, we can build good relationships and find good businesses, and you have the option to say, yes, I'd like to invest, here's how much, or no, this one isn't for me.
0: No, yeah, definitely, and... Uh you know so now you have your investors and you alluded to how yeah there's you pick your spots your area of competence and or your circle of competence mm-hmm. and you decide to look in different areas and so you know you've segmented down to okay size we're going to go down to smaller companies and you decided to not go with the search fund model where you just completely buy something up but rather that or you buy something up but you are not acquiring just one company but the idea is to acquire multiple companies and sometimes it might not even be that you're losing a CEO in terms of like you're buying a company and the founder's running away. Sometimes it could just be the founder still stays on, Mm -hmm. but they could actually realize the value. And so how did that business model um, develop and how did the thought process work for that?
1: Yeah. You know, I thought, I think when we first started, we, we were willing to be flexible back to that concept of flexibility. We were willing to be flexible and nimble. And what we said was, you know, our job is to generate a return for the people who back us. That's our job. Hard stop that doesn't mean that you know we have to write a three million dollar check or a 20 million dollar check. It just means we need to generate a return, right and find a deal that we can sell. So when we first started, we were really flexible around you know do we step into a management role right? And we said, we'll look at companies that we have to do that. There's two of us. That means that we can do two deals reasonably until we get the next level of infrastructure in place and then separate ourselves out. So the idea was always to do more than one. Um, it just so happened, you know, we, we just made a, an investment in a fantastic, you know, uh, Toronto-based business here called New Sales. And, um, you know, management stayed on. And it was a, it was a really great deal, really cohesive partnership. Um, you know, really energetic management team that wanted, you know, wanted an investment from a strategic, I mean, we're not a strategic group, but from a party that brings some, some value aside from just money because that's not really what they were looking for. Um, and it worked out really really well so I mean in that scenario where we've got a you know a management team that's incredibly competent and can take the business to the next level but wanted to complement their skill set to say hey would love some attention in these areas where we think we can create some value we looked and said this is a this is an ideal scenario. I mean, they're, they're literally, you know, four blocks from where we're sitting right now doing it. And that's, you know, it, was, it, it kind of, back to that concept of it kind of came together. I mean, it really did come together in this scenario where, you know, it was the right location, right age management team, right scenario where what they were looking for we could provide, uh, built a great relationship, um, but also allowed us to say, okay, great, we're going we're gonna to help grow this business and we're going to grow it like crazy um, you know, and, and, management's already doing a fantastic job of that. And I mean, we're trying to, you know, we're inserting ourselves where, where it makes sense. Um, but it also allows us to sooner, you know, or, you know, or more quickly relieve ourselves of, okay, we're not just going to look at this asset. We're going to actually go out and look to do another one. And, um, it just, it worked out well. Uh, we were flexible, and we still are flexible, and I think that that you know that helped us. Having said that, for anyone who's listening to this, uh, and I know you have a lot of subscribers, so I shouldn't say anyone, but anyone who's still on listening to me drone on, um, you know, it's it's interesting that you'll you'll find the you'll find a lot of opportunities, you'll find a lot of opportunities to deploy capital, you'll find a lot of opportunities to. Um, to get involved in management, I think picking your spots is really, really important, and making sure that your first deal makes a ton of sense is really important. And there are a lot of businesses out there, and really great businesses, that you know capital can be deployed into. And, and candidly, there's a lot of room in the market, right? This isn't a this isn't a predatory market. This is actually a segment of the market where you know we're grabbing a coffee or a beer with a bunch of other groups that are doing the same thing as us because there is enough room we're helpful we throw deals their way if you know it doesn't make sense for us for a number of reasons and they do the same so it's a it's a really friendly environment and
0: one that isn't isn't predatory And there's a ton
1: of opportunities
0: mm-hmm. and now as you go into more i guess um just like how when before you went into investment banking you had a thought of this is probably what they do and then when you went into it you realized this is what you actually end up doing <laughs> so what what do your friends think you do with spruce and what do you actually do well
1: you know i'll, I'll start i'll go uh i'll go higher level on this right, yeah. is a funny story so when i first you know i'm I'm the uh i'm the product of uh, of italian immigrants right they moved my parents moved to um to mm-hmm. canada but they were they were both fairly young but you know there's there's a certain mentality there right there's a certain mentality of get a job security and and that's what you do um and i remember telling my telling my mother hey you know hey mom this is what you know what i'm looking to do and she said, so, okay, hang on, let me get this straight. You're going to run around and talk to business owners. Yeah, uh-huh. Follow. Okay. And then you're going to tell them you're going to buy their company. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you're going you're gonna to determine what to pay for that company. I was like, yes. Okay. They're going to agree to sell to you. Yes. You're then going to go out and raise millions of dollars to buy this company. Yeah. You know, Sam, I think you're nuts, right? Like, I mean, if, if you're just like, you know, I think it was the first time I saw my mom, in my mom's eyes, he, he's lost it. He's completely lost it. And my uncle, who's a chef, I had a very similar conversation. We just see this, like, real concern enter their eyes. We're like, I'm not talking to someone who's mentally sound. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just a, a funny story there. But w- what we do... What we do is is really I, I like to think we build at least in the initial stages build relationships first and foremost i mean we've walked away from deals that we the price was right the returns look good just didn't feel good about the potential partners and maybe for someone else they were a great fit but for us it just didn't feel right we you know a lot of this is not to go soros like i wake up with a you know a, 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 an upset stomach and as a result i don't do the deal But a lot of this is how do I feel about working with this person? Because if you can't get a good partnership in in good times, uh, there's going to be bad times and it's only going to get way worse. Right. So, you know, a lot of what we do is relationship building. A lot of what we do, it's actually really exciting because what we really get to do is we get to be students of industries every day. Right. Where we get to talk to an expert in the field every time we talk to a new business and you know you take that little learning and you apply to the next one you get smarter on the space and smarter and we get to talk you know from the fashion industry to the most random thing we've been approached to do is finance a movie by the way we didn't do either of those things but you know that's really interesting like you know we know how both those things work so i'd say we're really building relationships for students of industry and slowly we're becoming you know subject matter experts in certain spaces um, and then the part that would probably surprise the people the most is is post close. Okay, now what do you do, right? How do you how do you help how do you help the management team here? How do you help uh, realize value and picking your spots? But it's it's a lot more sensitive. It's a lot more. And again, this is this is how I approach it. I've, I've always been a little more relationship driven, but there's a lot of soft touch to it because you you have a management team that's competent. They built it right so you can't fly in and say hey i know how to do this and i know how to fix it get out of the way um and i honestly think people who do that probably end up destroying more value than creating value we also don't invest in distressed companies we invest in companies that are doing very very well and it's almost a how do you slowly help right or softly help without getting into the getting in the way of the captain let him the, let him steer the ship so that's been the that's been the part that's probably been the most surprising. Granted, it's the newest for us, but figuring out that dynamic and um, how do we, you know, how do we help? Where can we help? Um, that's the part that, you know, we're, I shouldn't say we're figuring it out in real time. We're we're doing in real time, right? Um, but that, I, I'd say that that's the, the thing that people would be most surprised about is it's not just you don't get the deal done and then run and go do your next one, right? It's... You've got to really understand the company. It's not as simple as saying, okay, buy, here's my limit, boom. Got it done and I'm going to sell when it does 20%. Like, it's got to do 20%. And we have responsibility to a lot of folks to make sure it does 20%. Or in in this case, I have a lot more than 20%. But, uh, you know... I would say that's it, but yeah, no, I, I, every time I uh, every time I and someone asks me what I do, I always think about my mom asking me that question. Just not, you know, not understanding it was just hilarious.
0: <laughs> and I think yeah, like people would only see the end product, right? They just see that oh, you did a deal, nice, good on mm-hmm. you. Now right. you're probably looking at the next deal, but like you said, it's been about two years uh, of running Golden Spruce and the deal that just you said it recently kind of closed. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you've had that kind of at least a year and a half period of just talking to companies mm-hmm. nonstop. And how is, how is that kind of like typical day like um, if you had to run through like a Monday um, looking at companies and all that? Yeah,
1: you know, I, I've always hated when, you know, I remember an MBA and I asked people, you know, or someone would ask, what's your typical day to a banker consultant? They're like, well, there is no typical day. And now I'm about to say it. So I won't say it that way. What I'll say is every day is different, right. um, You know what I what uh, we have we have interns this summer. We ran an internship program, which was fantastic. We had you know um, five really quality people in the office. Uh, sorry, four really quality people in the office. Um, in in uh, in addition to Lath and myself, um, and that was a bit different. It was a little more structured, but really we're on the phone most days um, with entrepreneurs. We do a lot of outreach. We reach out to, you know, we'll pick a pick an industry we really like um, for a number of reasons. We'll then sit down with one of our interns and we'll say, okay, this is the industry we're going to focus on. Go out and find me, you know, the top 50 in your mind in this space, in these geographies. And then let's sit down and go through them and understand why it is you like them. So they get to learn how we think about what we like in the company. Um, and we also get, you know, labor that's helping us kind of build out our crm right um so that's a that's a big part of every day with the outreach the outbound to build that call a proprietary channel that it doesn't come through boutique investment banks or the accountancies um and then we're, we're having conversations with with folks now it's different right now it's different where i'd say we're probably you know the, the easy ratio because it's used all the time is 80 20 the 80 20 flipped. Mm-hmm. So now eighty percent of the time we're we're dedicated solely to, you know, ensuring that this asset continues to do really, really well and we're supporting, but there's gonna be a period of time where that flips because we've got a really competent management team. We've put systems in place and that's humming and, and growing, you know, creating value for our investors. And now we're gonna be spending not now, but in the future we'll flip that. It'll be twenty percent of our time and eighty percent will be back to Talking to entrepreneurs and doing and doing all that good stuff, but the reality is, you know, you need a very full pipe, and these things do take a lot of time, right? They take. That's one of the things I wouldn't have appreciated. And, and back to your question around, you know, what wouldn't your friends or someone really understand? It's not like buying a house, right? It's not like saying, okay, this thing's for sale. You're not on Amazon saying click to buy, right? One click to buy and, and you're done. It's it's an incredibly detailed process. It's iterative. You have you know, irrational people on both sides, right? Because we're human beings and we're, you're, we're, we're naturally irrational. Um, you have emotion running through that. You have cold feet. You've got, you know, you've got a number of things that come up and it's coming up every day that they do take a long time. So as a result, you've got to build out a pipeline and that pipeline needs to be robust. And, you know, you, you keep the pipeline going even through acquisition. So I'd say right now that 20% is really being spent on what were the active businesses and, and owners? Who are we talking to? And let's keep talking to them, and let's keep you know working with them. Because if we were to sign a you know if we were to sign an LOI tomorrow, LOI being a letter of intent to purchase, um, non binding, you know I'd be I'd be surprised if that deal I'd be shocked if it were to happen in under four months. But if it were to happen in under six months, that'd be quick, right? Wow. And that's with two parties that agree to. You know, to get together, if you think about the proprietary channel, you know, I this is back in my days in, in Dental Corp, where I really kind of thought about this. and mm-hmm. said, okay, I'm reaching out to someone who's not thought about selling. So they first need to be willing to entertain the conversation around it. Second, they need to be willing to wrap their head around selling. Third, they need to determine that we're the right party to sell to. Mm-hmm and fourth, they need to determine that we've offered the right price. And there's a lot of things that go into that. So when you build out your proprietary channel, it takes a long time, but it's very valuable because that's where you can create real value and create long-term partnerships. Um, and you're not running through a process, so it doesn't come down to highest dollar. Ideally, um, you know, you, you don't want that to be the case, but we're all economic animals. So I think that 20% is gonna be focused on managing those relationships that we currently have um, versus going out there and, and pounding down new doors, at least for the you know next next few months, until we feel very very confident that you know um, the portfolio company is performing well. I mean, you know, we've we've staked our careers on this, right, and our reputation. Uh, and because we you know, and I feel like we do the same thing if we went institutional, but we brought a lot of our you know mentors and our networks money to this deal. And as a result, you know, there's. This isn't, a, oh, if it goes bad, you know, we just walk away. No, this is a, you know, we care about it because we see these people regularly, not just to talk about the business, but even outside of that. So, you know, there's a, there's a great deal of care here and, and back to choosing our spots and picking our spots. That's why, you know, we took as long as we did to get to where we are. Um, we said no, a hell of a lot more than we said yes.
0: Wow. And for you personally, though, as we are, as you're shifting now, you, your 80, 20 has shifted Which side do you enjoy more? Which which side puts you more into like the flow state?
1: That's a good. That's a really good question. Um, I'm still in the honeymoon phase, right? It's still relatively early in terms of that. You know, in terms of the creating strategic value in the business, I find it really interesting. I love learning, right? I love you know, if I could get paid to be a student the way I want to get paid, I'd probably be a student, right? I, I just I really enjoy learning, and I think. Right now, I'm in a heavy learning phase of, of this where we're in the business, we're meeting all the managers and taking them out for coffee and learning about their roles and, and trying to figure out ways that we can make their lives easier to accelerate You know, some of the initiatives that they have. That's really, really interesting. It's been fun. It's been nice to switch gears. So I think that certainly puts me in a flow state. But when I'm in most in my flow state, I'd say is is certainly when I'm Uh, building relationships with people right and but that's not you know that's not limited organizations that's not mutually exclusive to deal sourcing versus you know post deal execution now actually implementing about creating value I really love interacting with people and I think that's one of the that's one of the areas you know I was giving a giving a talk at U of T last week and um, I think that's one of the areas that often gets downplayed in our industry is that You know, it really is a people-based business. And, you know, the moment you make it solely about numbers, I think you've gone, you've gone astray and and you've started to play a dangerous game with, you know, financial engineering. I do think that this is a people-based business. It's based on relationships first and foremost, and then you see if you can make the economics work, right? But, you know, not surprising, if you've got a great relationship, the chances of making the economics work are a hell of a lot higher than if you're solely using the economics to lead the discussion right so i think that you know the people aspect the soft aspect of this the relationship aspect is the part i enjoy the most and i think uh, the part that often doesn't get talked about or thought about as much
0: no yeah i think it's i think what you're saying is like it really kind of hits the nail on the head in terms of how generally business is a people-to-people thing and I think, though, what I found is in the investing world is like the higher you go up in the companies you buy, it tends to get more focused on the economics and less on the relationships. And I think that's where the kind of the inefficiency comes mm-hmm. in, where you just can't run an algorithm through. You right. just can't that decode the business in that sense. Like, even in the public markets, you look at a micro cap compared to a large cap, way more inefficiency there. And you talk to management, it actually matters. And I can only imagine that it's even more, super, like, more. The magnitude is just greater mm-hmm. in the private sphere.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely the case. I think, you know, if you think about public markets, certainly as you go large cap, look at the number of shareholders,
0: right? Yeah. So
1: if you can break the number of, uh, or not break, but increase the number of irrational people at the table that have smaller pieces, I think it actually decreases the, the you know, the emotional, or the emotional nature of the decision to sell or buy. The moment you start to concentrate that, which you probably find more and more in small cap, certainly in private, where you know the business is in two or three people's hands, um, and in small cap, you know, you're know you probably in, you know, I won't even throw out a number, but a hell of a lot less than when you're in a large cap, um, it does become more driven by the personality of the person who owns it versus the other side, which is, okay, you've got a board who's now making a decision on behalf of the shareholders, unless you've got a very large shareholder who can ultimately make a recommendation. And you know, approved purchase, whatever. Um, with private, you don't have that. The, the board, you know, it's you've got the jury and the executioners right in front of you at the table, and they can determine if they want to do it. And sometimes, you know, we are human beings. You have a conversation with someone who had a fight with their spouse that day, right? And they don't like you that day. Or, you know, you remind them of someone they don't like. Like, You know, there's there's those components, which are true for any business, it's just our business, the power tends to be concentrated far more to that person, um, which is just, it, it makes it interesting. It makes, it really does make every day quite different. And, and one of the really unique things with what we get to do is, you know, because I, we're, I have a partner in this, um, we're very different people. And there are some of the people we talk to are more like me. And some of the people we talk to are more like him. Um, and I find that really interesting to manage that dynamic as well. But i find because we're such you know we really are on you know our the way we you know he a consult, We're a consultant reform consultant and we've talked about uh talked about the concept of uh, you know venn diagrams our venn diagrams just touch right there's not a massive amount of overlap which actually works out well and i think it's the way you want to do it but that's both from a skill set perspective and i think they're slowly starting to merge a little bit but we still have enough separation uh, but from a personality perspective you know i think the, they they touch enough that we have commonality but different enough where we can actually address a lot of the market and and appeal to a lot of different people and um and i think it it works out really well that way and it certainly makes every day really interesting
0: yeah and i think even in general um i think i forget that the essays but there's a, another like hbr essay on structuring teams properly and it's like yeah you practically want all the right people on the bus who are of different skill sets and mm-hmm. cover your blind spots, your weaknesses, and everything. And you actually want that's what true diversity is. It's not really racial or right. gender specific. It's actually more skill and personality based. Yeah, you exactly. actually want diversity
1: exactly. And I think I think we've you know we've benefited from it in you know again very small sample size, but I think we've benefited from it. it comes with the challenges too because you do think about things very very differently, right? And this right. is a partnership based business. Um, but I think net-net, we're, we're far ahead for, for for being partners in this because, you know, I'll think one way about a business and he's like, but well, you forgot about this whole piece, right? And very valid point or vice versa. And I think having that natural check and balance where if we thought the same way, we both are blind in the same area, right? The blind spot reference that you just made, I think is, is so, so true. Um, and just, again, meeting different people, working with different people, that really is the exciting part of the job for me. And, you know, he might have a different view on what's exciting for him, but although I think, you know, I know he really enjoys that component as well.
0: Yeah, no. and as we kind of wrap up closer to the final legs of the interview, what, um, what was like the largest obstacle that you and lay faced in operating Golden Spruce Capital? Like you looked at it and you go, man, that, that, one, that piece required a lot of perseverance, like a lot of grit to get through.
1: Well, you know, honestly, every deal takes so long, right? So, you know, the, the biggest piece of perseverance was really around. You know, we had a we had a deal go sideways a year ago, mm-hmm. uh, actually a little over a year ago, but f- 14 months ago, and uh, we'd spent a ton of time, a ton of time on on this asset, and our you know. Uh, we were both really excited to do it. It would have been a very fast close from when we first started to get it done, which would have been really exciting. Loved the business, great business, still is to this day, but some things changed at the final minute and we couldn't do the deal. And, you know, I remember that the next day after that deal was done, right, where, you know, you're so convinced you're going to do it and you're like, you know, we're going to get over this hill. The next day, it was, you know, end of July, early August, it was like, okay, wow, we're, you know, we don't have any calls with lawyers. We don't have any calls with accountants. We don't have diligence to do in this asset anymore. It's done. Like, it's gone. Um, what do we do now? And it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. We, we have to start reaching out again and say, hey, you know, remember us. We're Gold Capital. We're still we're still here looking to buy something. Um, and trying to do that in August is incredibly challenging because no one wants to talk in August, right? Like the, you know, entrepreneurs, that's that's like the month of, vacation for for everyone and but certainly in, the, in that world they're not talking to new people then so we had a month that was you know relatively dry we're both we're both very biased to action and it's tough to stand still after you've had what at the time felt like a massive failure to stand still and say there's, you know there's not much we can do right now um Aside from, you know, building, you know, building out the, the CRM and building, out, you know, new industries and thinking about that. So I'd say that, that was really challenging. But overall, the industry requires a ton of perseverance because, you know, you get a lot of, you know, uh, figurative doors slammed in your face constantly saying, I don't want to talk. How did you get, you know, how did you, who told you to call me? <laughs> no one told us to call you, right? Like, you know, we like the industry and we thought we'd reach out. Um, but you get a lot of door slam on your face, um, and that's, or in your face, sorry. And that's, um, that takes time to, to build some, some tolerance and some tough skin too. I think I got really used to that at, uh, you know, my time at dental corp kind of flying around trying to uh, trying to do deals with Dennis. And, um, as a result, I, it doesn't really impact me that much. It's, you know, you can't love dealing with humans if you don't, if you can't handle the, the negative side of that either. Um. But I'd say that that in general is a tough part. It takes a long time, right? And you know, I was talking to uh, to a, a friend of mine who's in the industry, and I said, "Yeah, you know, we're getting close on this one." He's like, and I was like, "You know," but every day something new comes up. And he said, "You know, he's done a couple of deals at this point." He said, "You know, Sam, I sometimes sit back and look at the deals we did and say it was an absolute miracle this thing got done. Like it's I can't believe it actually got across the line. And it does take a lot of you know." things fall in the right direction, right? If it falls the other way, deal's dead. But if it goes that way, you're good to go. And there's, you know, you're, you're certainly as you approach deal close, that starts to happen increasing every day. So I think the perseverance piece is, A, you know, probably starting with relatively low blood pressure because it will rise over the, uh, over the process. But I think, you know, being willing to, to kind of pick yourself up from, you know, from your bootstraps and, and say, okay, time to get up and, and now... Get back on the phone and start talking to more entrepreneurs, and drive out to Mississauga and Brampton and Barrie and you know Whitby and you know all of these smaller towns because you know it's very rare you find a business that's downtown Toronto that's uh, you know in, in, in the sphere of what we look at and start all over again, right? And you've got to um, you've got to put on a brave face for a long time to keep doing that, and I think that's the that's a challenge and that's the really you know to say to persevere. You need to persevere through perseverance is effectively really what it is. This whole job is, you know, it's uh, long, long lead times, few deals. And, um, you don't, you don't get no, you don't hear no, um, always at the same time, right? You can hear a lot of yeses. Then one day they woke up on the wrong side of the bed and, and the deal has gone. It doesn't mean it's gone forever, but you've got to be willing to take that, manage it and, and move on with your life and keep your business going.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you've made a prediction back when you were in your MBA saying that, okay, in 10 years, I'm probably going to be a <laughs> managing partner at a private equity firm.
1: Right, so, which is which is actually, it's it, that's verifiable on, on Google if, yeah. you, if you search it, yeah.
0: So, you've, you've made that forecast, but if you were to kind of look back at your 20-year-old self, your 20, so 20-year-old Sam, probably in the third year university, were to look at where you are right now, what do you think the emotional reaction would be hmm. um,
1: I think pretty yeah pretty damn impressed you know yeah. and it's almost it's funny you ask that question I mean I I've never thought of it that way how would I look at myself at 20 I'll tell you how you know I think pretty impressed but that the more tangible thing for me is two years ago right when we started Goldenspries Capital if I were to look at what we've managed to do to date which is just one deal right just one deal and it takes a long time again but just one deal i'd be giving myself a pat on the back even two years ago right um it's it's a it's a real real challenge and uh it's also you know it's we we have to remind ourselves every once in a while i find that you know people in in our in many industries but in our industry in particular and those are the people i interact with the most have a hard time kind of celebrating small wins or even big wins because we're so driven and we're so okay great we did this but now we've got to go to the next thing um i find it's important to savor some of these moments right like you know i'll remember the day that we the day that we signed and you know we cheers a glass of champagne that was fun right but you know uh you got to keep driving forward but still remember that hey we've come a long way we've done a lot we're certainly not done we have a lot more work to do and a lot more investments to make, and a lot more money to make for our investors. Um, but no, it's it's nice to see your your thesis come true. Uh, that's the it's it's a nice pat on the back moment. But you know, as as one of our investors said when we let him know we got the deal done, we said you know just want to let you know we closed and you know congratulations on, on making the investment. And he said great work. Guys. He said uh, that's great, guys. Uh, uh, now it's time to get to work. Right? And it was like, oh wow, yeah, you know, you're right. That is the that is the exact way to think about it. So, um, definitely would have you know, looking back, uh, or sorry, projecting myself forward, um, my twenty year old self probably would have said, Told you so, given that I wrote that in the uh, <laughs> I wrote that in Toronto Life. Um, but no, I think uh, pretty proud and and, uh, and certainly not the path I thought I'd take to get to here, but you know, that's part of it, right? That's part of what makes it fun. Yeah.
0: And if you could give advice to that twenty-year-old self, or the advice you wish you had gotten at that age, what do you think uh, you would have wanted?
1: Not, uh, you know, it's it's funny. I remember not getting into investment banking,
0: and that was just
1: devastating, right? Like it was just like the world was going to end. I was like, you know, I'm never, I'm never going to be the person I want to be as a result of that. And you think that, you know, when you're twenty, you haven't had, you know, where I hadn't had that many failures in life, and. As a result, uh, probably wasn't as resilient as I needed to be at the time, and uh, I think the advice I would give myself is, hey, it's all, it all is gonna work out, you know. What, what, and it sounds like a, it sounds like a lazy cop out, but if it, if it's meant to be, it'll be. All you can apply is, you know, is energy towards it, right? Apply effort, but if it doesn't work, um, your life will, will be fine. You'll be, you'll be okay, and you'll find something rewarding um and and something you can be passionate about because if you i I find that um at least for myself investment banking was really the thing i was geared towards and that was what was going to make me happy and that's what i was passionate about it's not what i was passionate about what i was passionate about was working with really smart people and if you start to broaden your definition of what it is you want to do instead of being so narrowly focused you can start to say okay well what else can i do to work with really smart people and I get to work with really smart people every day now, so um, I'd say that that you know is a lot of advice for my twenty. Apparently, I had more advice for my twenty year old self than I thought, uh, but I'd say that's it. Just don't don't define success so narrowly, and um, things tend to work out.
0: No, I think that's actually great advice. I think I went on the journey myself too. In terms of, I always thought I was super passionate about value investing and public equity investing, and so I went to work at a hedge fund, but it was just distilling down to like the why investing, and was. Then it became, oh, because I really loved powerlifting. Then why powerlifting? And it just ultimately just became that I just love learning. I just love optimizing the human system. And it was just, okay, then what can I do that actually has that? And it was, there's a lot of different things too. And so that just became, okay, then let's just combine my values, my strength, and let's just find something else about it. And yeah, I think that distilling down to the first principles of what is it you're passionate about is actually uh, a valuable thing to do and reflect on. Right. Yeah. No. That's a, that's great advice, definitely. And yeah, Sam, thanks so much for um, the time you've given and coming on the podcast. Like, I really enjoyed it. And
1: no, thanks for having me. I was uh, I was surprised surprised to get the reach. out. I remember you know, <laughs> I, got, I got the email from, from Charles, and I was like, well, you know, I've always been told I had a face for radio, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not, not sure what, what value my story is going to bring. But uh, you know, uh, thanks thanks for having me. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, and, and hopefully, you know, some of your listeners learned something. Um, learn something new, or maybe get a maybe get an idea for uh, where their next internship will be.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, for people who are looking for an internship at um, you know a small private equity shop, definitely reach out to Golden Spruce Capital. Um, and yeah, Sam, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, thanks also for sticking around for all the battery issues I had. I really <laughs> appreciate that. No problem. Thanks. all right thank you for listening to the podcast i hope the story was inspiring to you it hopefully it also helped you expand your perspectives hopefully it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had and maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it doing something different maybe challenging yourself being courageous who knows but regardless i'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest and if you would like to somehow in some way contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that i'm trying to build with the greater omd ventures platform really think about being a stakeholder in the platform and the quick way to do that is to go to my website oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page i believe it's oldmandan.com stakeholder and the link is also down below and that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe follow to get more updates on the free content but at the same time also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee that's just how i put it and you can buy me a coffee a month coffee a week or coffee every day of the year and think about it as the way that you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you, so you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry, uh, everything will still be free. It's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way, so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further. So your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute. And so yeah, just check out the website, go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder all right thank you